This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less taxes. This is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of Wealth Ability. So, in the news right now, big deal is Joe Biden's new tax plan. And I have been dying. I mean, literally dying for this podcast because what I want to make sure everybody knows is what does this really mean? What, what would happen if Joe Biden got everything he wanted? Okay. And I'm not anti Joe Biden. I'm not, I, th I think he's a nice guy. What does this tax plan actually mean? What does it mean um, from a personal standpoint? But frankly, what does it mean from an economic standpoint? So today we have a very special guest. I am very excited to have uh, an expert from the Tax Foundation, which I think is the best think tank on taxes in the world, okay, certainly in the United States, and, um, and is very, they're very objective. I find them to be very objective. I find them to be very thorough, and I'm very excited about this because when we make a decision on a, a, a vote, you know, and, and we never had a bigger vote than we have in November, right? When we make a decision on a vote like we have in November, we need to make sure that we're really understanding the facts, not just what the media tells us or not just what one or the other candidate tells us. So we're not really, I'm not really looking at this from a what's right and what's wrong or what's good and what's bad. What, what I want to do today is let's, let's discover really what this Joe Biden's tax policy would mean to America. What would it mean to you personally? And what would it mean to America um, e economically? And so we have with us uh, Garrett Watson, who's a senior policy analyst at the Tax Foundation. Welcome, Garrett. If you would, just give us a little bit about your background and a little bit about the uh, Tax Foundation, if you would. For sure. Thanks, Tom, for having me on. I'm excited to speak with you today about this uh, important topic. Uh, my name is Garrett Watson. I work at the Tax Foundation on federal and state tax policy. Uh, I've been working here for about uh, two years now, and the Tax Foundation focuses on how to improve uh, tax policy and educate uh, taxpayers, policymakers, and the media uh, at the state, federal, and global levels. Uh, we really try to focus on how to um, make tax policy work uh, to raise uh, the revenue that we need to fund government services, but do so in an efficient and smart way. Uh, and steer uh, folks away from uh, what might be ineffective ways of doing that uh, so that we can maximize economic growth and, and opportunity uh, for Americans. Uh, and of course, that is uh, particularly important uh, today, uh, given uh, all the uh, different ideas out there about how to uh, reform our tax system moving forward. Oh, awesome. Thank you, Garrett. So, so our listeners all know, because they, 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 they listen to me on a fairly regular basis, that, you know, I, as why I explain the tax law, and you and I had this discussion earlier, I see the tax law as primarily a series of incentives. I mean, most of the tax law, whether it's incentives for energy, or, uh, natural energy, as well as uh, clean energy, whether it's uh, incentives for sending your kids to school, incentives to buy a house, incentives to, uh, now we have incentives to live in a particular state, okay? Um, we, have, we have incentives for, um, you know, buying a, buying a particular type of car, even. So, all of these are incentives, what, what you know, fundamentally, we know people hate paying taxes. Um, I had uh, uh, Morris Pearl, and he was talking about how, you know, millionaires need to pay more tax. I'm going, 
understand, but also understand that the tax law is really fundamentally uh, incentives. And so, you know, the question is, do you, if you're going to raise more money, do you raise rates or do you change the incentives? Because I think those are two very different things. So um, that's kind of the, the fundamentals of where WealthAbility comes from is, uh, as, as uh, I explained to you, uh, Garrett, I'm a tax guy. I'm a, I've been around, I've been doing taxes, uh, in, involved in tax for 40 years, including three years in the national office of Ernst & Young when Reagan was president, including, you know, time with the Fortune 500 company. So um, I love, I, I'm, I'm very practical about it, but I'm also, I, I, I'm a big believer in looking at policy. And I, I really, it's not, is it good or bad, but evaluating what does the policy do? Okay, what does it actually do from a practical standpoint? So if you could, um, Garrett, for our listeners, would you kind of outline what you see as the major tenets of uh, Biden's tax plan? Sure, happy, happy to do so. Um, of course, this is an interesting time in tax policy because uh, a few years ago, we did undergo a pretty big uh, set of tax reforms um, in, 20, in late 2017 uh, that did uh, change taxes dramatically. And a lot of the discussion in tax policy since then has been uh, what are the ramifications of those changes and whether or not they should stay because over the next five to 10 years, a lot of those tax changes, uh, some of them being the rate cuts, others being the structural changes you just mentioned in the tax code are gonna be phasing out or going away. And that really does set up a lot of the motivation of Biden's tax plan, uh, which uh, is trying to get at or criticizing some of those tax changes. We saw, of course, tax cuts for individuals. We saw the corporate tax rate uh, in 2017 go from 35% down to 21%. Uh, we saw some structural changes in our international tax system. And so uh, one major change that, that Joe Biden is advocating for is to uh, start repealing some of these uh, tax changes, particularly for higher earners above about $400,000. Uh, so he would start rolling back uh, the uh, the top tax rates uh, that are lower now for those individuals. Uh, he'd like to see the corporate income tax rate go up from 21% to 28%. Uh, he would also like to make some um, changes above and beyond repealing some of those uh, those tax changes from 17, uh, two of which I'd highlight. One is a minimum tax on corporations because he thinks that they have not paid enough uh, in tax. Uh, and the second uh, major change is in the treatment of capital gains and investment income. Uh, where uh, you see much higher rates on that income uh, and, uh, and structurally that might uh, try to raise more revenue. Overall, uh, his tax plan, if everything was enacted, would raise about $3 trillion over 10 years. Um, and just to give you a sense of comparison uh, to Hillary Clinton's tax plan in 2016, that added up to about $1 trillion. So it is a, a pretty large increase in revenue uh, and uh, it's overall uh, pretty progressive in that it's focusing in on those higher earners uh, to get that um, that revenue, though there are going to be second order economic effects for everyone, and happy to chat more about that too. Yeah, so so let's talk about that. So to me, I, I break down Biden's tax plan uh, into two different pieces, right? One is raising rates, which I don't think there's very many people who are going to say raising the rate from 37% to 39.6% is going to make much difference to people who are in that tax bracket. I, and I don't think it's going to change their incentive or anything like that. And I, um, interesting, I back when I was going through my master's of tax program at the University of Texas, um, one of my professors said, you know, 40% is a magic number that people tend to pay more attention when the rate's over 40% to reducing their taxes than they do under 40%. Do you, do you find that that's true? 
I think there is a, a psychological barrier there for sure. And of course it would uh, go uh, up above where it was before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So that's another change where you would see, see it go back uh, beyond where it was over a decade ago. So there's a change there too, in terms of uh, how used people are to those, those kinds of tax rates. No, that's, that, that, that's a good point. So, but you know, when you, you, you talk about changing tax rates, that's one thing. Or adding an, another tax bracket, some, you know, a tax bracket over a million dollars, like Hillary Clinton proposed, right? She proposed that 4% surtax over a certain level. Or um, adding a, um, a tax, a, a, even a, a thir- a, another tax rate over 5 million or something like that. You know, t- you know, my sense of that is from an impact on the economy, I don't think that would, you know, my sense is that would not have a huge impact negatively on the economy and on how people behave. What do you think about, uh, what do you think about, let's start with just raising tax rates. Uh, I think your, your intuition is right, especially on the, on the individual side, uh, the, the changes on uh, tax rates there don't have, they do have a negative economic impact, but it's not particularly large. Uh, where we see the larger economic, negative economic impacts overall in the plan uh, are on the more structural changes like you highlight here, like this minimum tax that might create a lot of complexity for firms uh, that are trying to, to earn, uh, earn profits. Uh, and the second area is in, in raising the corporate tax rate just because that does have a direct impact on investment uh, in the United States uh, from a competitiveness perspective internationally. But that's really, the, I think, the biggest place where a rate change matters economically. A lot of the other negative economic effects you suggest are, are more structural in nature. Got it. So, so uh, I'm, I'm just curious. So I, I'm, I've been dying to talk to you guys, the tax foundation. Where do you think the corporate tax rate should be? I mean, is 21% uh, too, uh, too low? Um, is 28% too high? W- w- uh, you know, in a, in a perfect world, where would you set the tax, corporate tax rate? So we've been uh, big advocates of the, the 21% corporate tax rate, uh, mostly because of because uh, statutory and effective corporate tax rates of the last uh, couple of decades have been uh, lower across the world. And we do need to emphasize our competitiveness uh, from, a, from a domestic investment perspective. Uh, though, of course, while the corporate tax rate is important, other aspects of the tax code that drive investment are also really important too. So we can't have too much of a focus now that that rate is down on the corporate rate. Uh, we also need to think about I- items like you mentioned earlier, um, such as uh, depreciation rules and full expensing. Uh, those, those issues are sort of arcane and, and sometimes can be challenging to understand, but they're just as much, just as important in terms of driving investment in the United States. So a lot of our focus right now on longer term tax policy changes to make structural changes that are going to incentivize growth, much like the reduction of the corporate income tax rate was. Uh, the challenge, of course, is education so that folks can understand what their structural changes might entail. Got it. So, all right. So that that's the rate changes. Now, my my sense is I my sense is corporate tax rate should either be twenty five percent or fifteen percent. That's that's my own perspective because I think fifteen percent we're a tax haven, and you just drive massive investment here. And at twenty five percent, we're competitive. Okay, so we're not a tax haven, but we're still competitive. Twenty eight percent, we're too close to everybody else. That's just my my opinion. But let's talk about the other side because I actually think the the rate hikes are really a minor part of this um, when it comes to the, you know, the additional tax brackets or the raising the corporate rate. To me, the bigger changes are what you were talking about when it comes to the incentives that are in the tax law, right? Rates are not incentives. Rates are rates. Um, but incentives include bonus depreciation. It includes or, or even accelerated depreciation includes um, uh, the 1031 exchange rules, which is, uh, you know, the ability to sell a piece of real estate without paying tax 
when you sell the real estate, as long as you keep the money invested in other real estate, right? And then there's some incentives, actually. I think when Biden talks about his uh, capital gains rate uh, over a million dollars, I think that that's also an issue that we ought to talk about. And I, 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 but let's save that for kind of part three here. Let's start with the really a lot of the fundamental incentives, intangible drilling costs, which is basically the oil and gas incentive, which he wants to get rid of, um, the um, bonus depreciation, which he wants to get rid of, and, uh, and, the, and the light kind of exchange that he wants to get rid of. It, let, let's say he got his wish list and, and you eliminated all those incentives. What do you think is the impact of that from an economic standpoint, I mean, ignore the tax side, but just how does that change how the economy functions? That's a great question. And I, I do think that that moving, especially uh, removing or, or not extending uh, the de uh, depreciation changes that we saw in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act would be one of the biggest uh, effects economically. What we find uh, in our various modeling is that uh, full expensing of assets, so allowing businesses to fully deduct uh, the cost that they incur of investment is a big driver, uh, an incentive, as you say, to uh, to invest more in the United States. Uh, and there's going to be, I think, a debate as those provisions phase out or if Biden goes ahead and, and advocates for outright repeal ahead of time about what the economic effects will be, especially when we think about driving a robust recovery coming out of this pandemic and economic crisis, which I think has added an additional layer there. Um, and you raise a, another good point that there are a raft of smaller tax provisions, uh, some of which make sense, others which don't, that drive uh, either uh, social policy incentives that we want to give to individuals or to businesses. Uh, and there are a variety of those that, that uh, the former vice president is advocating for uh, changing, uh, including uh, incentives for, for green energy uh, investment that might uh, be disruptive economically if there's uh, non-neutrality in the tax code there. Uh, and, and of course, some, some other effects in the, in the real estate industry. He has been very specific about the changes to like kind exchanges, though he seems to hint that that might be an area to raise revenue. Uh, and uh, all these industries overall are gonna be um, dealing with recovering from the, the coronavirus crisis. And so it is important that we think smartly about um, maybe thinking differently about adding in more, more preferences in the tax code and instead focusing on provisions that will uh, extend long-term growth um, across the entire economy. Well, here's my, here's my fundamental question, Garrett. So people have gotten, the, the economy has gotten used to certain things. The economy has gotten used to 1031 exchanges. They've been around forever. The economy, one of the early tax incentives was the deduction for intangible drilling costs, which in layman terms is basically for basically every dollar you invest in an oil well, you get an 80 cent deduction. That's basically, to, to put that simply, the, the economy's used to that, okay? They're used to these incentives. What happens when, you know, when I look at Biden's tax plan, it seems to me like it's, it's basically, he seems to be saying, well, these are just benefits to the rich, which I don't look at them that way. I mean, do they mostly benefit the rich? Yeah, because they're the ones who invest the money, right? But I, I don't think it's, uh, and, and they're the ones with the high tax rates, right? So it makes sense for them to invest. But what happens when you, when you basically change the fundamental underpinnings of the tax law so that those incentives that people have gotten used to that are actually priced into asset prices in the economy, what happens to those asset prices when those incentives come, are, you know, come out? Let's say Biden got all of those and, they, and, and basically you broaden the tax base by getting rid of those incentives. What is the impact on the economy in the short run? 
Yeah, you, you raise a good point that investment decisions are driven by some certainty. And a big part of that, of course, is, is what tax provisions there will be. So if, if a business or a firm is using, is making an investment decision in part because of the way the tax code is treating a given investment, going ahead and, and altering or removing that, that tax incentive can be disruptive for uh, not just that investment, but also the expectations that business owners have moving forward about their future investment. Uh, and, and that's what's sort of pernicious about some of the phase outs for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is it's really unclear whether or not these taxes will be, these tax provisions will be extended or not. And it, it creates a lot of uncertainty about whether or not it makes sense to invest uh, in, a, in a given location in a given opportunity. And so providing long-term certainty about uh, what the tax law is going to be is really important. We can have debates about whether or not a given provision makes sense, whether or not we should remove it and broaden the tax base to raise more revenue, maybe that'll be more efficient. But either way on that question, having either temporary tax policy or policy that, that's in question, depending on which administration is in the White House or who controls Congress, really does create uncertainty with investment decisions, especially in an economic climate like we have today. I'll get back to this in a second. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine. He's a client of mine. He's a former board certified surgeon and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. You know, we started, uh, you know, historically we started with tax incentives. A, a lot of the, ins the investment type incentives started back in the 60s, right, with the investment tax credit, kind of the first big foray into a tax incentive for investing in business and investment tax credit. And then we got the intangible drilling costs and, and we, and then Reagan brought in accelerated depreciation on real estate, right? That was his, uh, his contribution to that. But it seems like there's been a very consistent move towards using the tax law to impact the economy to actually to actually encourage certain activities so that the government got people to do what the government wanted them to do and uh, what it seems like to me that Biden's talking about is removing a lot of that and and to me that you know you're changing basically 50 60 years of policy and you're saying no we're going to stop using it that way it would be no different than frankly if you went to a flat tax right i mean it's the same kind of idea you're you're broadening the base and you're getting rid of these incentives but isn't there a, a short term i mean a, a fairly significant upheaval in the economy if you do that well, there definitely would be a disruption. Even tax policy changes that might be for the better are going to create disruption. And so you have to be very smart about how uh, the phase-ins work, the expectations that business owners have so that they can have more planning. Uh, that, 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 I think, is, is really the, the tricky work of tax policy is making sure, even if a, if a given policy change makes sense, uh, that it's not going to have unintended consequences that might cause some disruption there. Uh, and so having some sort of having phase-ins, making it very clear what the policy is, uh, and making sure that you're getting the tax base right, because you do want to make sure uh, even if it's an incentive that that drives investment to a given industry, that that's not having uh, either unintended consequences or uh, is actually sure. part of the right tax base, so we can raise the revenue that we need. And so, uh, but, but providing that certainty is is very important. Yeah, I actually thought when I was uh, watching the Democratic 
primaries, I was watching all of them, them all saying, well, we're going to undo the, 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 the uh, corporate tax rate. I'm going, well, that certainly makes companies from overseas want to invest in the U.S. when you have an entire uh, 50% basically of the electorate saying we want, you know, we don't want this corporate tax policy. And uh, to me, it seems like, it, you know, that by itself is disruptive. Mm -hmm. And the other important thing to consider is when you think about a tax policy change in isolation, it might make sense or might might seem like just a small change, right? Just a rate change here and there or one preference eliminated. But you got to look at these tax plans in totality because when you add up the effective tax burden right. of all these different tax changes, it may actually be a very large difference um, in, in the economy and in the incentives people face if they're facing very high combined tax rates or, or a structure that doesn't incentivize uh, investment or, or additional work. So let's talk about another. Um, so the other kind of big, I think it's a really big change that Biden is proposing is, and I'm going to look at these in combination, is the lowering of the estate tax exclusion to three and a half million dollars. And then the um, addition of uh, ordinary income tax rates, in fact, doubling the, the tax rate on capital gains after a million dollars. Okay, I actually see those together because I'm, you know, I, our, our listeners, primarily small business owners, they're entrepreneurs, and they spend their lives building a business. Okay. And so, uh, you know, uh, what we effectively have a $23 million exclusion makes it really easy because I don't have to think about it. I can pass it on to my child if my, if my child wants the business or I can, you know, I can keep it or sell it, whatever. It's, uh, basically, estate taxes don't have an impact on most small business owners. Okay. Some of them they do. They do the planning, but for most of them, they're not going to. But at $3.5 million, they all do right? Because three and a half million dollars, you know, you think of it as a lot of money, but when it's a lifetime worth of work, or you're talking about the value of a business somebody's built, it's really not that big of a, it's not that big of a dollar, okay? It's not that big of a threshold. So, he's talked about um, it, both reducing the exclu exclusion, and he's talked about also uh, eliminating the basis step up, which uh, basically, really benefits, I think, more of the, the less wealthy people than it does the more wealthy people, the basis step up, just because, you know, the, the, the less wealthy people, it's their stocks, it's their, their businesses, it's their farms, you know, the family type businesses that, that benefit so greatly from these basis step ups, which mean you basically eliminate the tax, um, the capital gains tax. So, uh, first question for you, Garrett, is, um, can you give us an idea of proportionally how much money does it, how much money would that provision of increase of lowering the estate tax exclusion how much actual dollars does that raise so the the change in the estate tax while it would uh, raise revenue would not would not be a large driver of the the revenue that that the former vice president would raise in his plan uh, it, it does seem like a lot of the motivation for the estate tax change and to some extent the capital gains changes is this uh, this, this part of this broader battle that, that folks um, on that side of things uh, have against either their concern about rising uh, wealth and income inequality sure. uh, and their perception that there's, a, there's a, a fairness issue as it relates to the tax treatment of estates and or uh, appreciated assets that are, that are subject to step up in basis. Uh, and, and the tricky thing, of course, is that you know, there's, there's interesting questions about fairness there, uh, but we also have to balance that with uh, the fact that uh, small businesses and startups are what some of the biggest drivers of net job creation in this country, uh, and that we are facing right now, even before this pandemic, a crisis of 
new, creating new businesses and innovation and economic dynamism. And the last thing we want to do and we want to be very careful about is penalizing uh, small business owners and entrepreneurs who are trying to pass their, uh, their success and their investments onto, uh, onto their children, onto whoever who's inheriting it uh, too much. Uh, because that could dampen what already is a, a declining amount of, of innovation and dynamism in this country. And so that, that's, that's, I think, a second issue that's important to think about, um, not just the rates, but what is this going to do about right. our broader innovative culture? Right. Uh, in so, so, so let me run a scenario by you and see what you think. So let's say that you have a small business that is um, uh, worth $5 million when somebody dies. Okay. That small business now is subject to a state tax. Okay, so in order to pay the estate tax, typically a small business doesn't hang on, doesn't have a whole lot of cash in the bank, so they're not just going to be able to go out and get the money or borrow the money or anything like that. Chances are they have to sell the business, okay? So now you've sold the business, but because you have no basis step up, now you have a capital gains tax, but you have a capital gains tax because re remember, I mean, most people that start a small business, they've started from scratch. So... You know, if, if they sell for $5 million, they've got $5 million of gain, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality. Most businesses have very little basis, so they have really $5 million of gain when they sell the business. So, you sell the, you sell the business for $5 million because you're over the million dollars, right, of, of, uh, which is Biden's level for the, the ordinary income tax. Okay, let's say that's the only tax, though. That, that's the only gain. You got $4 million that's going to be taxed at, let's say, it's 40%, okay, plus state taxes. So, let's make it 50%, make a nice even number. So, that means that you're starting out where you sold it and you only have $3 million. Now, you're going to pay a, an estate tax of another 40%, not on the 3 million, but on the 5 million, or at least on the million and a half. But let's say it's on the whole 5 million, okay? 40% tax on the 5 million, that's another 2 million. So basically what you're saying is, is that the government comes in and takes 80%, potentially, now hopefully that's not the way they'd actually do it, but potentially 80% of a small business. Why would anybody ever think about passing on a small business to their, to their son or daughter. To me, it spells the end of the, of the family farm that goes from generation to generation, the business that gener goes from generation to generation. You know, you, you love your local restaurant, well, kiss it goodbye when the owners die, right? Because it's gone. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And that's a great example of the, the additive nature of various taxes where, oh, you're just paying the small amount. But when you think about a state tax on top of income tax, on top of state tax, eliminating step up, you do have a pretty high effective tax burden. And on top of just the paying it, it is a, a very complex provision to comply with. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a complete nightmare. Anyone who's had to deal with the estate tax knows that. Uh, and of course, uh, it, it also um, deals with, you have a lot of uh, planning opportunities there and it creates a bunch of um, hassle for folks who are looking to uh, avoid it and additional work that they need to do um, that they wouldn't be under, that they could put their effort toward in their business if they didn't have to deal with that. Uh, and so uh, overall, it's not even well designed for the goal that it's trying to achieve. Uh, and so, uh, and, and that's part of the motivation of what happened with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is let, let's reduce the number of estates that have to deal with this so we don't have this big compliance burden and disincentive that's um, 
getting our small. Yeah, we would actually refer to the Biden plan as the Accountants Full Employment Act. So <laughs> it, it would be because you'd have also, I mean, if you have an 80% tax potential tax liability, that's an e enormous incentive to do tax planning. I mean, enormous incentive. So, I mean, I, I, I'll be busy till the day I die with that kind of a plan. So, you know, from a selfish standpoint, be good for me, right? Bad for my clients, but good for me. So what would you do? I, I, I'm, I'm going to go into, okay, what's good tax policy just for a minute here and then we'll, we'll wrap up. What do you think does need to change from a tax policy standpoint? And are there any of Biden's proposals you go, these are okay? Yeah, those are great questions. And we've been exploring what makes sense uh, for the, not, not just the short run, we've been still focused on liquidity measures and the various stimulus bills coming out of Congress the last few months, but thinking about what would longer term tax policy look like. And one of the top things, which I just mentioned before, that we would like to see is permanence on full expensing of assets so businesses uh, can uh, get the full value of their investment from the tax perspective. Uh, that's really important. We find that to be a pretty big driver of growth uh, in, in the long run. Um, another thing that we've uh, looked at a bit, of course, is adjusting the tax code so that it can uh, serve new economy businesses well uh, and gig economy workers. The tax code is really outdated as it relates to a lot of uh, that. It's a big compliance drag. So we'd like to see some simplification there. Um, and, and to go back to some of your points, I think revisiting some of the uh, tax expenditures and elements of the tax code that is driving social policy and getting it out of the tax code would be really important. Uh, if we do have incentives we want to provide, we can do that outside of the tax code in, in many areas. Uh, and, and that could not only raise revenue, but also simplify it a lot. So finding areas of simplification, which um, unfortunately with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, while we reduced rates, we didn't simplify the code all that much. And in some areas, we actually made it more complicated. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking of speaking of social policy, earned income credit would be a good example, right, of a very complex, very complex computation that 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 really affects the people with the least ability to make the computation in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. And and is very e and and has been a subject of a lot of scams and uh, you know and and fraud. Frankly, um, it's something the IRS has really had to, to work hard at because um, the IRS systems obviously are a little behind the times. And um, uh, so that's the type of thing you're talking about, right? Is let's, let's simplify things. Let's do things outside of the tax law that aren't really, um, don't need to be in the tax law because they're, they're not incentives to do something. They're really just a reward for being something. Right. Uh, that and another great example, of course, is the, the giant extenders package, which happens at the end of every, every conference. <laughs> yes. where they, That's you know, terrible. Temporary tax policy, often, often applying to past tax years. So it's not even yeah. changing behaviors. Right. Those are the kinds of things we could um, be working on. Awesome. A any last words that you'd like to share with voters who are looking at, okay, how, if, you know, if tax policy is important, and frankly, I think tax policy is important to everybody because I've never yet met anybody who said, I want to pay more tax. I mean, I actually, <laughs> I've actually asked people, I said, well, if you want to pay more tax, do you know that there's a box you can check and you can actually voluntarily pay more tax? And they say, yeah, but I don't want to pay more tax if not everybody's paying more tax. Okay. Okay. But if nobody likes paying tax, then, all right, then what do we do from a tax policy standpoint or, or what should we be doing individually when we're looking at um, the November election when it when it comes to this narrow area of, of tax law? Yeah, I, I think there is a, a pretty uh, broad difference in vision between uh, both of those, uh, both of the sort of competing plans that we're seeing uh, shape up. We're hoping to see more details out of, of course, the, the White House on their potential uh, plan. They've hinted at some things, but we'll have to see. Um, and, and very much have to take all of this in the context of, I think, the economic uh, recovery that we're hoping 
fingers crossed, we'll be seeing later this year and next year uh, and, and the impact that these tax plans will have. Uh, and of course, we have to always situate the, these tax ideas in the context of the spending side and the, and the competing visions that um, folks may have on, policymakers may have on that. Uh, end of things, as well as have to mention, of course, our growing uh, debts and deficits. We're now you know, going to be running, running structural deficits moving forward, a uh, pretty unprecedented amount of debt, and we're going to have to find a way to either cut spending or raise revenue to ad eventually address that, even if not in the short run, um, to address the immediate crisis. Uh, and so uh, it's going to be a, a, a difficult time for policymakers, and we got to keep all that in mind when weighing the, the trade-offs of how we raise uh, tax revenue uh, to, to address our debt and any additional government services that we want yeah, to provide. I, I found it pretty interesting when you said that Biden's tax plan of all everything's implemented raises $3 trillion over 10 years. And they're talking about a $3 trillion single bill. Right, right? exactly. And, and nothing in Biden's tax plan, I don't think any of the money goes to the deficit, right? It all goes towards other programs, that's right? A, so he's talking about raising spending equal to the raise in the revenue. So the deficit just keeps growing. Th that's right. And that's going to be one of the main challenges is how to address that in a way that's sustainable. Uh, and unfortunately, just going toward raising taxes on higher earners is not going to cover cover it uh, realistically. And, and that's not how other countries have done it either, for example, in, in Europe. So uh, we have our work cut out for us on that uh, side of things. Yeah, that's for sure. So um, uh, Garrett Watson, uh, Senior Policy Analyst at the Tax Foundation, where do we go, go for more information from the Tax Foundation? Uh, for more educational material and analysis on everything that's going on in, in, in tax world these days, feel free to visit taxfoundation.org. Thank you, Garrett. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening and watching. Uh, you know, tax policy, it, it, the thing to remember is tax policy doesn't just drive revenue to the government. Tax policy is about how people behave. And one of the things I've loved about the Tax Foundation over the years is that they do what they, they call a dynamic scoring, which means when they look at how much revenue is raised, they're looking at how people's behaviors change. And it's very important because people's behaviors will change, you know, because people hate paying taxes. So what's important is, is, you know, as we understand what goes on in the tax laws, we understand what these plans are, then we can start looking at, okay, how does that affect me? What can I do personally for my own economy? Because, you know, you know we, can, we can vote, but other than that, we don't have a whole huge impact on, uh, you know, government policy, but we can vote and we can vote with our dollars and we can, also, um, we can also do something about it with our own economy because when you do and you get this kind of education like you've gotten from Garrett and the Tax Foundation this morning, you'll always make way more money and pay way less tax. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.